0: Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It's my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week Tressie McMillan Cottom, whose important new book I've just read. It's called Lower Ed: The Troubling Rise of For-Profit Colleges in the New Economy. Tressie McMillan Cottom, welcome to Talk Nation Radio.
1: Thank you for having me, David.
0: It's a very interesting book. I wouldn't say uh, cheerful. Uh, okay. about, well, I uh, can live with that. <laughs> <laughs> about uh, for profit colleges, which you describe as as sort of resulting from the incredible inequality in our society and furthering it. Can you, right. can you explain that?
1: Sure. Uh, so, when I first started kind of doing this work, uh, One of the things that really troubled me was um, how we really talked about for-profit colleges in this really narrow way. Um, So they were either, like, you know, at the vanguard of higher education and doing every innovative thing, um, or they were just uh, predators, you know, uh, preying on millions of people and um, sucking the federal student aid system drive billions of dollars. Uh, I come somewhere in the middle where I say those things can be partially true, but we actually sort of have a bigger problem. And for me, that problem is by reading the for-profit colleges, especially the large um, publicly traded shareholder for-profit colleges. So those are the ones that have the names that are probably really familiar to lots of people, like Strayer, the University of Phoenix, et cetera. By reading their financial documents, this is what we get. We get a story um, from these schools themselves. And the story they tell people is, we are a good investment because there are more people graduating from high school than are prepared for college, but those people need college for good jobs, so isn't this great? Well, that's great unless like, you are like me and you sort of think that maybe producing millions of people from unequal K-12 schools is not a great business uh, 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 opportunity, that instead it's a social problem. Right, and and I say it's the social problem precisely because the business model only works if we keep doing this vastly unequal thing. So that's the first part, like right. Why I say it stems from inequality. The second part of that is uh, perpetuates inequality. Now that all of that would be fine if for-profit colleges were transforming the opportunity for millions of people who don't have that opportunity anywhere else. And after about fifteen years of really rapid growth. The data are in on whether or not that's true, and the data says they are not. That's not true. For-profit college students are more likely to be unemployed and for longer, and when they are employed, to earn less than students who go to traditional, not-for-profit colleges. Yeah. And while there may be lots of reasons for that, it's still the reality.
0: Now, before you you went into all of this research, you worked in admissions for for-profit colleges, yes, and it, it sounds like with perhaps some regret. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, so dealing with sort of like um, the regret um, issue was one of those that I kind of had to get over fairly quickly to sort of do this work. But absolutely with a sort of deep amount of compassion, I hope, and empathy um, is sort of what I developed from my time from working in for-profit colleges. So, yes, before I went to graduate school and got a Ph.D. and became an academic and a sociologist and a researcher, I worked in two for-profit colleges in North Carolina. In the book, I refer to one as the beauty school, and the other is the technical school. And my experiences there really are invaluable. It was precisely because I had worked with so many students, this really interesting cross section of people, that I was able to see the research about for-profit colleges. I think differently than my um, colleagues did, than other researchers did. I knew that these students were not just prey, but I also knew that their choices weren't necessarily innovative and good either. I knew it was much more complex than that, and that's the complexity I went searching for.
0: Yeah, but so you you don't exactly think it's, it's all a scam, uh, that the degrees are totally useless and the education is totally useless, but uh, it, it is coming at a at a very high price, right? I mean, this right. is something of right. the expensiveness of being poor. You're, you're paying even more money than you might for a better education somewhere else. Uh, yes. It's just easier to get into, right?
2: Right, and that's
1: actually the story, I think if anything, this is the story about poverty and inequality in this country. We know that poverty is very expensive. It's expensive to be poor. We've looked at that in things like banking, for example, right, where poor people pay a lot for things like check cashing because they can't get access to a traditional bank. We've looked at it in housing, cars, da-da-da. I'm simply saying we also have the same phenomenon in higher education and that that's historically unique. So what used to be the case before, like, the mid-1990s was that the most prestigious colleges were the most expensive, And so, yeah, we sort of justified the high cost of those by saying, yes, but look, it's Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Brown, right? So you're getting that. By the late 1990s, the most expensive colleges are the least prestigious. For-profit colleges become the most expensive, um, and poor people, therefore, are paying the most for college.
0: And... and they're getting into it not just because they qualify and are able to get into it but because the, the the credit is readily available and as you recount in the book some people are even using education whether they have any interest in it or not as a system for getting getting loans.
1: Yes the connections to me to poverty were very stunning I mean I, even going in like I did you know wanting to understand how inequality was working. Even for me, it was kind of stunning. So I've got students, for example, who say things like, "Listen, how else am I going to get, you know, a lump sum of money that isn't tied to my credit worthiness?" And by lump sum, this is what is just so sad for me. That student, um, the one I have uh, in mind in particular, Mike, he was talking about five or six thousand dollars. Right? He wasn't talking about thirty or forty grand. But being able to get like $4,000, 5000 $6,000 um, to extract that from st- his uh, student loan borrowing was something that was going to help him, in his mind, do these other things that would improve his economic position. Start a business was his example.
0: Now, I, I think George W. Bush said that such people should shape up and just, you know, borrow a larger amount from their daddy. And, and, <laughs> That's right. and, and, I mean, what?
1: and I can't believe, I mean, the real story here is how many people chose not to be born to wealthy parents. Yeah. I think that is the real
0: story. It's, it's shameful. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but there is a there is a lot of, of blaming the victims, right? Why did you go to that school? Why did you go so deeply into debt to go to such a lousy school? You know? right. Um, That's
1: right. Uh, and I think the debt, I think the blaming, um, which is, again, one of the things that really motivated me um, to do this project and to do this work, I think the individual blame for the social problem bothered me probably most of all because it let too many people off the hook. If we can say you should have known better, then we don't have to deal with the reality, and I argue the reality is that increasingly all of us are going to have to figure out how we can do this thing called lifelong learning and, you know, upping our skills for the new economy. Uh, Politicians love to uh, promote this idea, right? The jobs of the 21st century will require us to do everything from code uh, to do big data analytics. But nobody tells us how we're supposed to do that when employers no longer provide that kind of on-the-job training. All of us, sooner or later, uh, if the uh, new economy keeps going the way that it goes, we'll have to make the very decisions that today we blame for-profit college students for making.
2: Yeah.
0: the. Uh the description of how you when you had that kind of job and many others when you went uh, as part of your research and applied as an applicant to to enroll in in many of these schools the the work of the recruiters does not really resemble uh work for the social good looking for who right. needs an education what kind of education it, right. it resembled in my experience more closely than anything else military recruitment oh uh, yeah that's you know, a
1: good analogy yes yeah. yeah
0: i mean targeting the most likely to sign on the dotted line and then you're unable to back out Tar- right. you know don't ask them when their parents are around don't yeah. tell them how much it costs until they've yeah. already come and gotten engaged you know it it, it Is it like, I mean, in military recruitment, once they've signed, that's it. They can't get back, they can't back out. Oh, well, that's Uh,
1: actually, I wish we had talked before I wrote, David. That's a great analogy, actually. (laughs) For my mind, what I was writing and what it reminded me of was uh, uh, timeshare sales. But no, I think that might be even better. Um, And because the the structure is very similar. If we even think about where military offices are located often, so these office parks, um, shopping malls, you know, strip malls. Many for-profit colleges ha- are in the same sort of locations.
0: Right. Well, you uh, did like, talk about it as competition. And w- if right. the military shrinks its, its personnel, that's good for the for-profit colleges. Uh, right. Here, uh, Donald Trump has proposed to radically increase uh, its personnel, as did his predecessor. Uh, and that may be bad for the for-profit colleges, right?
1: Actually, yes. Um, I mean, it's almost it's a bit perverse but for us to think of it this way, but I, re- I remind people the military is an employer. It's actually one of the largest employers um, in the country and one of the largest employers um, that does not require um, college for entry, right? Um, and so lots of poor people have always historically relied actually on the military to develop a professional career and to get professional training and good benefits. So, perversely, if Donald Trump were to expand the military, yes, it could be competition for for-profit college students. Um, in fact, for-profit colleges, the shareholder ones, said frequently that their only competitors were not other schools, that their competitors were the military and the economy, that if people had jobs or could get enlisted, that their prospective student pool would shrink dramatically. Uh, I think the only thing that probably complicates that and what maybe our our dear president doesn't understand is that today the modern military will mostly expand by buying probably more drones than they will by hiring more people. Um, uh, So it might be more complicated than he assumes. But yes, you're right. What he's proposing could ultimately really be more competition for for for-profit.
0: Yeah, we're, we're speaking with Tressie mcmillan Cottom, and the book is Lower Ed, The Troubling Rise of For-Profit Colleges in the New Economy. I, I think there's also another uh, area of competition between this business and the military, and that is there are countries on this planet where you have free education from preschool yeah. through college treated as a human right, right, which we could have in the United States for a small fraction of military spending. Absolutely. So where has that idea gone? on to, this idea that, I mean, is this part of the rise of these of these for-profit colleges? The, the it
1: absolutely is. The, the rise of for-profit colleges could not have happened without an ideological shift happening first. And that shift, starting by the 70s, certainly picking up speed by the 80s, was the idea that education is just an individual good, right? The reason why people, individuals should pay so much for education, so more loans, fewer grants. Is because they're the only ones who benefit, right? Um, well, that was a big change from my idea that education would benefit society at 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 large, and so the public should sort of invest in it. Yeah. Um, without that ideological shift, we don't get, I think, the um, conditions that produce for-profit colleges. But yes, the idea is it is entirely possible for us to choose a different system of higher education, and I hope that's the takeaway from this book. That for profit colleges, even if we were to get rid of them today, but if we kept all of the same ideological problems, economic problems, we're just going to produce a new kind of for profit college. And that instead we can remove the um, the predator um, uh, motivation, by shifting back to the understanding of education as a public good. There,
0: there are probably other factors that interplay with the ideological change, uh, yes. I- including, you know, a, a loss of better paying jobs and unionized jobs that didn't require a college degree, right?
1: Right. I actually think the decline of unionization might have been one of the most um, sort of on-the-ground conditions that led to the uh, to adding value to the idea of for-profit colleges. Um, because what they were saying was, employers are not willing to pay for this expense anymore.
2: Yeah. And
1: isn't that convenient? As it happens, we also have a federal student aid system that will pay for it. When you put those two things together, you've got the perfect scenario for the increase of for-profit uh, colleges. So unionization was a way for workers to extract from their employers investment in their development and training. Now, we've thought about that as um, how often that manifests in things like better pay, better health insurance, and better retirement benefits like pensions. But yeah. I'm arguing that also one of the things that went the way of pensions and good health care and good pay was also employer-sponsored, employee, employer-paid-for training.
0: Yeah, but only for the members of your union, not for the society at large. So then there's that resentment and division. You know, it's not like Scandinavia where that's just free for everybody. Exactly. and so Nobody exactly. resents the other people who get it. That's right. Um, I, I was also struck in, you know, reading some of the content of, the, of what's taught at some of these for-profit colleges and no doubt some non-profit community colleges yes. as well. Seems like stuff that you ought to know by high school or be able to teach yourself i mean it, it, to 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 take a college course in how to use quicken which seems to me like a computer program that comes with instructions mm-hmm. uh, maybe i'm underestimating the complexity of quicken i'm not no <laughs> expert but it seems to me if you don't know how to you know open a computer program and read the instructions and teach it to yourself by high school the problem is is high school and elementary school
1: mm-hmm. um yeah I- even high school, yes, might be a bit too late. I think, um, so, you know, there's a plethora of really great research out there about how inequalities play out in K-12 through education, and I do think that one of the things that we see um, in the for-profit college student universe is the logical outcome of now about 40 years of dialing back everything that was put in place to try to make a uh, public uh, K-12 school more equitable and more fair. And we're just dealing with that now. We, we're kind of at the end of that rope. Yeah. Um, and it, it is important, I think, for us to keep in mind, um, I say this uh, to my students, for example, all the time, and to other people that travel around and talk about this book, a lot of the things that we take for granted about what we know about how to learn or how to go to college, the quote-unquote right way it's something we really inherit from our parents. And if we didn't get that from our parents, we got it from school usually K through 12. Well, there are millions of people whose parents don't know and whose K through 12 experiences don't teach them.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: And they are graduating from high school, um, with the same understanding of how to have a good life that all of us graduate with, which is go to school to have a good life. Um, our inheritance of the idea of how to do college the right way is not equally uh, equitably distributed.
0: Uh, very true. Very true. Um, do, do, do the for-profit, I mean, looking at this distinction between for-profit colleges and traditional or real colleges uh, do the for-profit colleges make any sort of pretense about training active citizens or is it, is it all about career and, and is that one of the big differences?
1: Yes. Oh, that's a great question, um, David. Yeah, so I, because I actually one of those ones that I was like really just personally interested in. So at one point I took all of the marketing materials that I collected from all of these for-profit schools because I wanted an understanding of the messages like you were describing. Um, but, you know, how do they explain themselves, right? How do they explain themselves to regulators, the taxpayers, but also to their students and prospective students and to employers? Yeah. And yeah, there is. Very little. I mean, there are only a couple of cases that I can remember now off the top of my head of a for-profit school using any language that, you know, you and I would find familiar. Things like how to be a critical thinker or how to be a citizen and participate in democracy or, you know, those types of things. Right. Um, and it, I attribute that to the idea that increasingly we only understand being a good citizen by being a good consumer. That, the you know, our language about citizenship has become so so impoverished that it is actually acceptable now for an institution to say it is providing a public good because it provides workers and people who can consume. Because all they talked about was, yes, yeah. sort of developing a good worker. And I think that's a real, um, that's a real loss for us as a public.
0: Well, they'll lose the planet if uh, <laughs> if that's what people think of as, you know, being yeah, a good citizen. I uh,
1: agree. I agree. The, uh,
0: the, the you know, the, the, the we shouldn't idealize the, the traditional colleges, no. which are full of problems and right. full of cheating, you know. But I found it interesting that in, in your book that uh, there seemed to be an inclination, at least by some people, to sign up for an online college course that's -hmm. going to have the same material it always has but different professors so nobody knows anybody and get all the answers from somebody who took it before uh, and go ahead and cheat and and no real motivation not to cheat when the whole point is is to get a degree not to not to learn something
1: that's right the incentives are absolutely rational right that was one of my takeaways from that too and there is a really now robust you're right and it's not just um, for-profit colleges there's a Technology has made it possible for there to be a really robust um, underground economy of materials and uh, support to help students cheat. Now, we're all sort of dealing with that, but it is uh, it is extremely uh, more easy in the for-profit college sector because of some of the structural um, differences. So what students told me is, the things that would normally tr- uh, trip up a student who wanted to do that are things like your professor would catch on, right? So yeah. in the traditional, class, your professor who always teaches this class would know. Oh, this looks like a paper I got last semester. Yeah. Well, if because you're a co- if you're attending a for-profit college that doesn't have uh, unionized faculty or faculty governance, and I know it can be like a dirty word, I think for some people. But one of the things that faculty governance does is it provides stability among faculty. Well, for-profit colleges don't have faculty governance and because of that they tend to treat faculty m- much like employees and other parts of the economy do they're easily replaceable and so they tend to have a high turnover rate so there's a higher chance if you went to the for-profit college that the c- this course you took this semester will be taught by a different person than who taught it last semester yeah. but the materials will be the same because at the for-profit colleges the faculty don't own the materials the school owns them, so they'll use the same test, the same assessments, the same readings, but a different person will be teaching it so like our our you know just our first line of defense against um, against cheating the faculty member has been significantly weakened in the for profit college sector,
0: yeah. I wonder to what extent. I don't know if your 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 book, your research covered this, but to what extent these for-profit schools and their culture are influencing the uh, the traditional universities.
1: Mm-hmm. I, oh, I know. absolutely a lot. Yet yeah, you're right; it's not as um, central to uh, to this book. You know, I think I got it embedded in some footnotes. But there is this idea. Sociologists um, Sheila Slaughter and Gary Rhodes have this term they call academic capitalism. Yeah. And that is their that is their idea and their theory. And what they say is that certainly by the nineteen seventies and certainly today, that the lines between not for profit and for profit colleges are becoming more and more blurry. Yeah. Um, and that it might be better for us instead of thinking of them actually as two different things, to think of them as being on a spectrum, right? You're moving from one to the other, that we've adopted a lot of the practices of for-profit colleges. And, in fact, I think a lot of the talk about things like, you know, MOOCs. We had a moment for MOOCs. Now we talk about things like boot camps or badges or micro-credentials. All of these things adopt a lot from for-profit colleges.
2: Um, yeah, especially
1: and- the idea that you really kind of need to get rid of faculty and certainly faculty governance and control, that you need to give students optimal amounts of choice because they are consumers, right? Um, and you need to get rid of all of that stuff that's like about critical thinking and whatnot because students, consumers aren't into that, right? They just need the skill. And not-for-profit colleges have been responding to that um, because of for lots of reasons, lots of pressures. And so, no, we've adopted many of the things that have been common in for-profit colleges for at least 40 years.
2: I, w- I
0: wonder if uh, a way to, uh, to turn the market ideology nonsense around on people would be to give students the liberty to actually choose the education they want by giving everybody a basic income guarantee and not making Absolutely. it a, a struggle for survival. Then, then, then what education would students
2: pick?
1: That's my solution. Thank you, David. I agree with you 100%. I say attack the demand, right, instead of trying to fix this problem just at the level of regulation. If we know that the real issue is that people are making choices out of desperation, then let's look at why people are so desperate. Well, as it turns out, for-profit colleges will tell you themselves, most people come to see us when they have just been laid off or are afraid that they're about to be laid off. Oh, well, then that's about economic insecurity. Yeah. Well, we know how to do that, right? We know how to put a floor beneath that process. And that would be a basic job guarantee.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, then you couldn't put 65% of federal discretionary exactly. spending into the military. You'd have to right. You'd have to put so a little exactly bit into something. Right. Uh, speaking of which, there, there's one famous uh, for-profit uh, school that I don't think came up in the book much, which is uh, Trump University. Yes. Uh, yes. Speaking of cheaters, uh, what, mm-hmm. where does that fit in the spectrum of, of for-profit schools?
1: Yeah. Um, so... Trump University is this interesting um, uh, blip, I guess, uh, which is it was, It's the most egregious of sort of the things that we think about as being related to for-profit colleges, because Trump didn't even actually set up a school. What he essentially had was like this real estate uh, uh, correspondence program. Um, so he didn't even go about the performance or the theater of being an actual school. Uh, for example, you know, there were no actual classes or faculty, et cetera. but he it was so um, cynical uh, that he traded he knew to trade on the name university, right? He knows how much that means to the general public that for lots of reasons, we still put a lot of faith in the in the in the idea of university. Hmm. So it was just a very cynical marketing uh, plan. Um, but it did embrace some other elements of for-profit colleges, which was focusing on people. again were economically insecure i watched those um the testimonials during the election of people who had attended trump university Uh and i was struck by their stories and one in particular at the dnc convention it was a woman who had just lost her husband and as a result had an insurance payment right that had provided her this you know unexpected lump sum of money but under the worst possible condition and that's why she had the money to pay for trump university um, and she was afraid, having lost her husband, that her income potential was going to be cut significantly, which is true for lots of women. Um, and I just was struck by how much her story of economic fear and insecurity was so much like the students that I interviewed in this book. Yeah, um, And that's what I think it ultimately had in common, that part of people that they are preying on,
0: we, we've just got two minutes left. What do you, what do you recommend? Short of building a better society, what do you recommend to students who are desperate for some sort of credential that will get them a better job, or for actually some sort of useful education? What's your your advice?
1: Oh, oh man! I I, I always counsel students to ask really good questions and the one that I have found to be sort of the best question to get at the heart of whether or not you're at a for-profit or not-for-profit or if so, whether you should be concerned is that when you're talking to people about school we have told you to ask things like how much does it cost and what's the admissions process. Instead, ask them whether or not your credit hours would transfer to another university. That tells you something really important. It tells you how other people view your school. And I think that's the one thing that prospective for-profit students don't know enough about. How do other people view that institution? So that's, that's one thing I ca- try to counsel people. But the other that I counsel people who are especially right now, I think, waking up to the idea of um, sort of organizing and local organizing especially, is that some of this we can address at local and state levels. You know, for-profit colleges to operate in your state have to have state permission, even if they are, you know, headquartered somewhere else. So there's state oversight of for-profit colleges, and that's a site for organizers to start engaging and thinking about, how does your state allow a school to operate in your state? Maybe you should find out and find out if they have things like avenues for citizens to respond. Um, And if they don't, you could probably ask why they don't. And um, so I think this opportunity both at the local organizing level and among individuals.
0: Very good advice, and there's more of it in the book. I highly recommend. It. It's called Lower Ed: The Troubling Rise of For-Profit Colleges in the New Economy. The author is Tressie McMillan Cottom. Tressie, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you,
1: David, and thank you, Talk Nation.